talkative tonight. That's better than normal. I want you to go ahead and stand with me as we open up in prayer. Thank you for tuning in tonight, being with us online. We're glad that you've tuned in as we kick off a brand new uh, teaching series tonight. And uh, we want to open up in prayer. How many have a prayer request? You'll just lift your hand. If you're online tonight, if you'll comment, we want to pray with you as well. I, I do want to say thank you for your prayers. My, obviously, I'm a little more vertical than I have been. Uh, back's doing better. Uh, I am going to go ahead and get more testing, MRI done, just to see the, the damage and stuff. But, uh, hey, I'm not hurting, so praise the Lord for that. You know, pain's an interesting thing. You know what? That's why I don't understand. Uh, I'm, I don't know. Yes. Um, I was talking about pain. That would be painful. <laughs> uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. It makes you do some funny, funny things. And uh, anyway, let's just, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you tonight, and we're grateful, again, for the opportunity to come together and study your word. Lord, what a, uh, again, a beautiful day that we have today. And Father, all around us, uh, if we just look, there are reminders of, uh, Lord, just how wonderful you are and your concern and care for us. And we are so grateful. Uh, Lord, we look to the past and we see how many times you've always been there for us and how many times you've always come through. Lord, we thank you for a wonderful service on Sunday. Uh, Lord, we thank you for just speaking into our hearts and our lives and Lord, challenging us, Lord, to just desire more of you. And I just pray tonight as we open up, uh, Lord, the hands that went up in the building, those that have tuned in online tonight. Lord, I thank you that you hear us when we pray. And I ask that you would just, uh, Lord, in, in, on our behalf, Lord, move in response to our prayers for those that need healing. Lord, those that need a touch tonight in their bodies, Lord, I pray you would extend that healing hand. Lord, for those that need some guidance, some encouragement. Uh, Lord, those that need finances, Lord, I thank you that you uh, are the provider. Lord, I thank you that you are our comfort, our strength. Uh, Lord, we just pray that uh, you would just come to bear on our situation that we're dealing with uh, tonight. And Father, we thank you for your, your faithfulness and the, and the answered prayers that we know about. Father, I pray for all the ministries that are taking place on the campus tonight. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted and lifted high. And I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts as we study your word and let us hear what the Spirit says to us. We commit uh, these things to you right now as we lift them up, believing that we receive what we ask for, because we do ask it in faith and in Jesus' powerful name, we all said, amen. God bless you. you may be seated tonight. <clears throat> I want you to go ahead and turn to Ruth, uh, Ruth 1. Uh, we're going to jump right into a new teaching series tonight. In, in way of announcements, uh, just a couple things. Uh, don't forget, coming up pretty quickly uh, on July the 3rd, which is about, what, two weeks away, two and a half weeks away, is our Celebrate America. We've not done that in a couple of years, so we're excited to, to be able to uh, uh, bring that back. It's a day I look forward to. I, I love to honor our vets uh, our veterans and celebrate our heritage. Listen, I know we're not there as a nation, but I know what we've been. And so I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have enjoyed. And I look forward to revival that can bring those freedoms to bear again. But, uh, uh, I'm telling you that please help us invite people. Number one, uh, we are going to do one service. Uh, I, I and, on, and the reason is we have lunch uh, typically after the 4th of July service, we'll have a barbecue lunch afterwards. So uh, it just logistically, it's just easy to just to do the one service. Uh, so we'll combine that morning for the 1045. We'll do our Celebrate America service, have lunch afterwards. If you know a veteran, please invite them, encourage them to come. Uh, it, uh, I remember some year, uh, a couple years ago, anybody remember, I forget his name, my mind just went blank, the little man that uh, was on Iwo Jima uh, that was here and I had, we honored him, and, and uh, he's used to actually speaking. He does a deal for veterans. Even now, he's up in his 90s, and uh, he does a deal right now uh, once a month for veterans in Fort Worth. They do a big luncheon, and um, after service was over, um, he came up to me, and he said, I've never been moved at a service quite like I was here. He said, you people do it right. And, uh, and, and again, it's a very moving time of patriotism, and so if you know a veteran, uh, even if they don't go to church, tell them they need to be here. We're not going to pull snakes out from under the pew, and we're not going to hold them, you know, all the, whatever the reasons are, we're not going to do any of that stuff. We just want to celebrate God and country, and uh, you know what? We're just going to leave the work to the Holy Spirit to do what he needs to do. Amen? Uh, in that vein, we also, Pam, need any more help? 
Thank you. We need help <laughs> uh, we, we, to pull this off. Again, a lot of times we walk in see the finished product. We need help. We need people with the cast and crew, mainly crew. Cast. Okay, so if you act, uh, if, if drama is part of who you are, we need you in the drama. Even if it's not, well, I was going to say quit doing drama and come be in the drama. Yeah, no, anyway, see Pam, because uh, we could use your help for this day. Uh, we we have you know we try to scale things back because sometimes it just like it comes in waves. We have people we have more than enough people wanting to be involved in drama. And then we have then we go through a season where there's not very many that want to be involved in drama. Uh, it's a powerful it's a powerful tool if you used right. It can impact people. So anyway, we've got that going on, and there was something else, and my mind just went totally out. Anyway, well let's get right into it. Um, as I said tonight, we're going we're gonna to start a new teaching series. Oh, and I, I was just going to say, what an awesome service on Sunday. Listen, I, I don't know about you, but that kind of, again, all week long, I've just, you know, I've received wonderful uh, messages and, and just, uh, listen, Holy Spirit's moving. If, if we just want to jump into what he's doing and just say, just bring it on, Lord. Uh, you know, just give me Jesus. And uh, anyway, so we're going to go right into our study. It's a study of Ruth, a story of redeeming love. And tonight we're going to be talking about heartache. Anybody know what it is? There was a song, It's a Heartache, Nothing But a Heartache. <laughs> How many's ever had a heartache before? Yeah, listening to me sing is probably helping with that right there, huh? <laughs> You're a tough crowd tonight. So, so Ruth chapter 1, let's work, read verses 1 through 5. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the women survived her two sons and her husband. May the Lord add his blessing to his word tonight. Now, we're going to get into this series. Now, I, I think we've studied this before many years ago. I, I love the book of Ruth. As we start on this new series, I need to tell you, it's an interesting book. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's an interesting book in that of all the 66 books of the Bible, we really don't find a lot of people quoting from this book. You know, there are people that quote from certain prophets, minor prophets, major prophets, or people that, pro, that, that uh, quote from poetry and historical things and the gospels and the epistles and all that, but you don't find a lot of people that quote from the book of Ruth. Now, there are a couple phrases that would be very familiar to us that we, we would know, but by and large, I mean, there's not a lot of people that quote from this particular book. Ruth is only four chapters long, uh, so that's short enough that one could sit down and probably read through this uh, entire book in probably 20 minutes or so. Again, it's just one of those uh, uh, small, small books that packs a pretty powerful punch. Again, one would seem to think that it's an unimportant story that has no relevance to anything that we care about in our daily walk right now, but that's not true. The, the truth is quite different, okay? Uh, this little book is filled with Christological significance uh, because when you start unpacking the story of Ruth, you see Christ, uh, you, see, you see the picture of redemption uh, in this story, and that's why it's such a powerful book. It's, it's filled with amazing beauty and wonder. The story of Ruth is a beautiful story of love and of grace. And so Ruth, uh, again, another thing about these are little trivial things. Ruth is kind of like an appendix to uh, the book of Judges. Uh, so it would almost be like a continuation of the book of Judges. It fits in with that period of time when the judges were ruling over Israel. In fact, the very first verse says, when the judges ruled. So it, it, it's in that time frame. When the judges were ruling, this would be before uh, Saul was anointed to be king over Israel. So it was a very difficult, it, it was a different time. Uh, this time was, uh, at the time of Ruth, it was a time that was marked with uh, spiritual confusion. It was a time that was marked with apostasy. Uh, again, this would be what you would find as, as contemporaries 
of what's going on in, in the story of Ruth. Spiritual darkness was evident throughout the nation, and yet here's the thing about Ruth. We find God, we, we find God working his plan in the hearts of those who were open to him. You know, it's an interesting, again, it's an interesting story because we live in times today. Paul, Paul described these times as perilous times. I mentioned that a little bit Sunday. These are perilous times. That means they're dark times. They're difficult days. He gives a list of things that we would see today that would be troublesome, things like heady and high-minded and lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God and having a form of God. All these things would be indicative of the time in which we live, and yet, when you look at the story of Ruth, it would be a similar time. It was darkness, spiritual apathy, and apostasy, and yet God was still working his plan through it all. See, to me, Ruth is a story of encouragement because even though we look around and we might see darkness everywhere we turn, this story gives us hope that God, even in the midst of darkness, is still working his plan irrespective of what the darkness does. And for us, that ought to give us great hope and great courage because no matter where I am, if, even if it seems hopeless to me, God is still working on our behalf. And so that's the, one of the things we find in this story. I also found, uh, I read this little bit of trivia about Ruth. I'd not heard this before. Um, I read where ben Frank, Benjamin Franklin actually used this story of Ruth to open up the Bible to French, the, the French aristocracy. I can't say it. Yeah, that right there. And, and, and so I started, in, I, I saw that little thing. I thought, really? I'd never heard that before. So, so the story goes, when he was serving in the French court as an ambassador to the United States, he, was a, he frequented the club called the Infidels Club. And, yeah, and whatever, <laughs> whatever that was. Anyway, while he was visiting the Infidels Club, one time he heard some of the, some of the French demeaning the Bible. Uh, as many of the pompous windbags typically do, even today. And, and actually, some of the things they were saying was how unworthy it was of their time and attention and that the Bible actually lacked relevance to where they were in contemporary society. Well, Ben Franklin knew that to be actually the opposite of the truth, so what he did was he played a trick on them. And what he did, again, they, they had a habit when they gathered in the Infidels Club to bring in people and they would read stories that were entertaining and then everybody in the room got to sit around and, and uh, either compliment them for their presentation or the story or critique them in one way or the other. I mean, it's like me standing here doing something and then at the end everybody gets to form an opinion about, you know, critiquing or, you know, uh, complimenting what was presented. So, so that was kind of what was going on at the Infidels Club. So Franklin, uh, Ben Franklin, what he did is he went to the book of Ruth. He wrote it out longhand, okay? So he rewrote the book of Ruth and changed the proper names that we find in Scripture to French names, okay? He just substituted biblical names with French names. And, and so he, again, he altered the manuscript, uh, and, and at, when he finished telling the story, so substituting the French names, he tells the story of Ruth, and at the end, they were utterly amazed at what he had presented to them. They loved its elegance. They loved how straightforward it was, the simple style, and their exclamation in English was charming, was charming. And their question to him, but where did you find this gem of literature, Monsieur Franklin? And he said, the Bible that you disdain so much. And, and so it's a wonderful story, uh, and it's a beautiful story. As we begin this series tonight, again, kind of an introduction, we'll look at the first few verses, but uh, one thing is very clear, and that is this. We're rarely, we rarely control what happens to us. How many would agree with that? We rarely choose what will happen to us, but we can always choose how we're going to respond. I, I, I've heard that, and I think most of us have probably heard that the majority of our lives. I can't control what other people do. I can control my response to what they do. That's what this story kind of tells us. Sometimes we make the wrong choice, and you know what? When we make the wrong choice, we ultimately pay a heavy price for our mistakes. Oftentimes, we won't learn the right lesson until we look back and see how God has been at work through all of the things in our lives. How many ever done that before? Just kind of pause and look back, and, and while you're in the stuff, it doesn't make sense. While you're going through the ringer, so to speak, it doesn't, there's no rhyme or reason to it. But when you get ahead of it or through it and you look back, then you can see there were lessons learned. There were things that you were able to glean from those experiences that you never would have had you not been there. 
that's the story of God's love and grace. You know, the story as we begin tonight in, in chapter 1, it begins with Naomi's story. So her story begins with misery and it ends with joy. Now, of course, we know the story, okay? We, we read the book. We, we know the outcome. She's living this. So her story begins in misery and it ends with joy. One, of the, one writer described it like this. It's an account of anxiety, fear, love, and commitment that inflames the imagination and soothes the soul. It begins with despair and it ends with delight. And that's a pretty good way to describe this book. And I think it would be a, probably a pretty accurate way of describing most of our experiences in life. We have what? We have anxiety. We have fear. We have love. We have commitment. You know, we, we, we sometimes live in despair. But you know what? We end with delight. And that's her story. Again, this tiny book is only four chapters uh, long. It's, there's not many, maybe, maybe 100 verses or so. I, don't, I didn't count them. But, I mean, there's not too many to it. And, and, but in this short book, it covers a, and, and again, it covers a vast range of human emotions. One of the things you read from this story, you can see and you can experience and feel. How many has ever read something that moved you? You know, there's some, there are some authors that can write in such a way that it absolutely captivates you and stirs your emotions. And that's what Ruth does. It, uh, it, it has a vast range of emotions, starting with heartache, and then it moves into intrigue and then to romance and then to happiness. And you see that all in four chapters in less than 100 verses. Along the way, what do we discover? We discover God working behind the scenes. Again, that's, that's the th- reoccurring thing that you're going to hear over the next few weeks through this series is God's behind the scenes working. You know, J- Job one time said, you know, he said, when I look over here, I can't see God. I don't, I don't see him to my right. And over here, I don't perceive him. And I look back, he said, I don't see him. But God was still working behind the scenes regardless of what Job was able to see. I think sometimes that's a great message to us because when we're in the middle of stuff and we're fighting, fighting for our lives, so to speak, or maybe we're just fighting for all that we have and we wonder sometimes where God is, yet behind the scenes, he's working in ways that we can't perceive at that moment. The real, the real hero or uh, the real star of the book is God. Again, we, we call it Ruth and we hear her story, but the real hero and star of the book is God who works in, through, and sometimes in spite of the decisions that you and I make. I like that because sometimes I don't make the wisest choices. And yet God, in his wisdom, working behind the scenes, in spite of my, Ill decide, Ill, you know, my, my, my wrong choices, he's still working. You know, life is filled with ups and downs. We experience trials and persecutions throughout our lives. We have joy and we have heartache. This life, sometimes it can be overwhelming and leave us stunned. And, you know, it, it, and, and as, as believers, here's what we do. We hold on to Romans 8 28, right? It says, and we know, what? what? What do we know? That all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That, that is something that we know. We, we believe that. We believe that God can bring triumph out of tragedies. And, and even through our decisions, he'll work for our good. That's what we believe. So that's the story of Ruth. That's what Ruth is all about. So the opening verse kind of sets the scene for us. And let me read it again. It says, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem, uh, this is an abbreviated version, in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech. He had his wife. His, her name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab, settled there. Naomi's husband died. She was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives, one named Orpah, the other one Ruth. And after they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Chilion died also. And Naomi was left without a husband, her two children, and the other ladies obviously as well. So there are three things I want to pick up tonight as we navigate through hard times. Three lessons. Number one, hard times may happen at any time. How many experienced that before? I mean, just out of the blue, boom, there it is. They didn't give you advance warning. There was, there was, there was no notice that, you know, of something, it just happened. And sometimes those things can just, how many's ever been sucker punched in the gut? 
Yeah, yeah. You, you, you. If you have it, I don't recommend trying it. But it's. <laughs> I, I mean, if somebody comes up and sucker punch, it, it literally drives the wind out of you. I mean, it just it, it hurts. It startles you. You're gasping, trying to trying to breathe. Life does that. Life does that. One minute you're standing up, you know, Sheila, one minute you're standing up at the sink, next minute you're in the hospital and then you never walk again. I mean, it just, it just happens. So, so how, again, hard times may happen at any time. So right off the bat, we notice that Ruth opens, and, and I think it's important we see this. It opens with a note that sets the, that sets the story in a particular place and time. That's very important because this is, this is not an allegory. It's not some parable. This is a story that's real. And he gives us a, a, basically a date or a time frame and a location. Again, look at verse 1. It says, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so we know this means the story took place after the death of Joshua, okay, um, and before Saul became king. So that's the time frame. After the death of Joshua, we read in Judges chapter 24, um, and then before King Saul was anointed, that's where the story, when we read the book of Judges, judges uh, again, sometimes when we read through there, how many of you ever heard somebody say, well, they did that which was right in their own eyes? Well, I mean, and the Bible says that too. Uh, sometimes when we read, we're tempted to think that it was a godless time, but that's not really entirely correct because the judges ruled for quite some time. It was a time when uh, again, the Bible says every man did that which was right in his own eyes, Judges 21, 25. But here's the thing. As long as the judges were ruling, the people served the Lord. But when a judge died, okay, this is the cycle. When the judge died, the Jews, what did they do? They returned to idolatry. So through the whole book of Judges, the entire time that the judges were ruling, that was the cycle of the nation. As long as the judges were ruling, the people served the Lord. They were dedicated and committed to him, but when a judge died, um, all of a sudden they returned to their idolatry, and it was that reoccurring cycle of disobedience, excuse me, of obedience, disobedience, judgment, suffering, desperation, and revival. That was the cycle that they went through the entire time. So it's not really true to say it was a time of unprecedented wickedness, because it really wasn't. It was a time when the judges ruled, when they were on the when they were ruling. They served the Lord. When they died, they reverted to that cycle of idolatry. Deuteron- in Deuteronomy 28, 24, Moses had warned the people that if they refused to obey God, he said God would curse the land. This is what he said. The Lord will turn the rain of your land into falling dust. It will descend on you from the sky until you are destroyed. Sometimes I wonder if that's prophetic to us. The Lord, turn the spigot on, please. We need some rain. But that's what he told them. It, it means, so, so what does that mean then? Well, here's what it means. It means that the famine in the promised land didn't just happen. It didn't just happen. It was more than a natural disaster. It was more than, uh, you know, if you watch the weatherman and he talks about um, how that a high-pressure, they call it a high-pressure dome that settles. And what does a high-pressure dome do? Well, it blocks out. So to get rain, you have to, I don't mean to be a meteorologist to you, but to, to, to do rain, you've got to have a low-pressure system that comes in that interacts with a high-pressure system that creates the condensation, the clouds, so that you can get rain. When a cap sets in, a high-pressure cap, it blocks that, okay? So, so what I'm saying is that this famine was more than a high-pressure cap that sat over the land of Israel, the promised land. It was more than that. See, God used famine to send a message to his people. He sent, a, he sent a famine. When they got in the cycle of obedience and disobedience and idolatry and, 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 and <laughs> desperate, all that cycle, it typically, when they got into the disobedience, then came judgment. Disobedient brought judgment, which brought despair, which brought repentance, which brought revival. That was the cycle. When people say, well, pastor, do you believe that God can speak to us today? <laughs> My answer, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we don't have to worry about that because you know what? God's got our number on speed dial. He can ring us up any time, day or night. And you know what? When he calls, we're not going to be able to put him on call waiting or call forwarding. God knows how to get through to us at any time. And, and sometimes 
and I'm thankful. You know, we, I've, heard, I've heard of people, you know, I've shared this story with you before, but I had a Sunday school teacher who, whose husband had not, who was not a believer, and she had prayed for him for 14 years, for many years. And uh, one day he's out in the field pulling, trying to pull a stump out of the ground, out of the pasture with a tractor. And when he did, he pulled that thing, and the tractor flipped over and crushed him. And laying under that tractor, thinking he's going to die, he cried out to God and said, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll serve you till I die. And God did. He was, he, he was rescued. He was uh, taken to the hospital. He recovered, never fully, but he was able to live. And he became one of the strongest believers, men I'd ever seen. You know, so some people say, do you think God, would, uh, God allowed that for salvation? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. You know, for a lot of people, that's, a, that, that's almost, how dare you think, listen, I'm thankful that we serve a God who's more worried about, more, more concerned about eternity than a temporary existence that we live in. You know, so God's got our number. So the first thing we need to understand is that, you know, hard times may happen at any time. The second thing is that hard times force us to make hard choices. They force us to make hard choices. If you're a Limelick, now think about this. If you're a Limelick, okay, what do you do when a famine impacts your family? Now, now I'll tell you, as a, as, a, as a husband, as a father, uh, I had a goal of taking care of my family. I wanted to take care of my family. I mean, in fact, part of the reason, uh, well, actually, the reason we moved to Texas, I don't know if you ever heard that story. The reason we moved to Texas, I had just I'd gotten out of the military. Uh, we had been living in Louisiana with her parents. We had traveled uh, all over the southeastern United States. We would interviewed at churches and and all kinds of things, and just nothing worked. And we got down to our last $2,000. This was in 1990. Got down to our last $2,000, and I had the epiphany. We better go to work. <laughs> you know, I, and, and again, I've been traveling all over trying to find that spot that God had for us. We found one in Mississippi that we felt like this was God's place. It didn't pan out. And, and uh, so we started thinking about where do we want to go? Well, where we lived in Louisiana, uh, at Leesville, uh, the home of Fort Polk, there, there's really not much there. And I thought, well, there's not a lot of opportunity here. So in our mind, we were thinking we would go back to Mobile. My family's from there. My father was still at that time an active firefighter. And I thought, well, I could go down there and I could get on as a fireman with my dad. Uh, that was kind of the thought. And I just said, you know, I just want to be open to whatever God wants. Well, the weekend that we were, uh, had decided to take off on that Monday, We'd gone to church, and we went out to Little Granny's. Everybody congregated at Little Granny's after church. They had their church. We had our church. We'd all congregate there for, for lunch. And she, Sheila had a cousin that had come in from Dallas who was a supervisor uh, at FDIC, downtown Dallas. And we just struck up a conversation, and she said, Hey, Sheila, what are, what are you guys doing right now? And Sheila, we, we were talking and, and said, Well, you know, tomorrow we're going to get up and we're going to drive to Mobile and we're, we're going to find a job and we'll probably settle there and see what God has for us. And she said, well, why don't you come to Dallas? I can get you a job with FDIC. And, and uh, we looked at each other and I thought, well, I don't particularly care about going back to Mobile. Never been to Dallas. Why don't we go to Dallas? So Monday morning, instead of getting up going east, we went west. We drove over here. She lived in Irving. That's how I ended up in Irving. So we, we, we stay with her in Irving for a week. She interviews. She gets a job with FDIC uh, downtown. We go back to Louisiana that following weekend. We pack our stuff. On that Sunday, we move back over here into an apartment in Irving, Texas. But the hand of God was orchestrating our event, our, our lives, because this was where I was supposed to be. This is where I was supposed to be. So, again, but I did that, again, with a limelight. What do you do when a famine hits? I had to make a decision. Where can I go to best take care of my family? That was what's going through my mind. Any man would think that. Any person would think that, actually. You know, the land around Bethlehem was some of the most fertile ground in the promised land. I mean, a, a man who worked the ground around, that, around Bethlehem could probably make a pretty decent, uh, could take care of his family. But what do you do when a famine hits? What do you do when the skies are brass and there's no rain and the, the fertile ground dries up? What do you do? Well, for Elimelech, the answer was simple. Let's go to Moab. 
let's pack up and let's go to Moab because it was a land that had good soil, obviously. It probably had adequate rainfall and uh, the famine hadn't reached that region yet. So, you know, maybe we can stay for a few months, maybe a year or two, and then we can come back. You know, the thing that the scripture brings out about Elimelech was he was an Ephrathite. And what does that mean? Well, um, it, Ephratha, Ephratha is the old name of Bethlehem. Remember the prophecy, out of you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So, so that was the old name of Bethlehem. So it would simply say that he, would, he came from a distinguished background, from a family with a long history in that region. It would be like saying, uh, you know, me from Mobile, Alabama, or a man from Beverly Hills. They would, they, there was something about that. You would know by that region. So um, it appears, again, that's where he was from. And, and it appears from reading the, the text that initially, you know, again, things work out. I mean, apparent, apparently it worked out for them. Evidently, they settled in the fields of Moab where there was plenty to eat, a lot of things for them to do. Famine of Bethlehem was now a distant memory. But here's the thing. Elimelech dies. We're not told how. We're not told why. Uh, only that he died, leaving her without a husband and the two boys without a father. Eventually, the boys marry two women, one Orpah and the other one uh, Ruth. And then 10 years later, what do we find? The boys died. Just like that. I read an obituary. I kind of, every once in a while, I kind of go through this thing where I like to read what's on the tombstone. And there was a lady who was terminally ill, and so she decided to write her own obituary, 69 years of age. Here's what she wrote. I was born, I blinked, and it was over. And, and, you know, we could all say the same things about our lives. We were born, we blinked, and it was over. Verse 1 tells us that Elimelech, again, I, I think we noticed that he intended to immigrate to Moab for a while. Notice that, for a while. So for him, this wasn't, in his mind, it wasn't a mindset, I'm going to move there and stay there. His mind was, I'm going to go there until the danger's mitigated, until the famine is over and I can bring my family back. That was his plan. He never intended to leave Judah forever. Uh, again, it was a temporary move into a foreign country made under great duress. But here's the thing. God was very clear with the Israelites in Deuteronomy not to have anything to do with the Moabites. In fact, here's what he said in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. Verse 6, never pursue their welfare or prosperity as long as you live. So here's this thing. In an, in an effort to help out his family, he disobeys God in going. Now, I suspect that he didn't intend to leave the Lord by migrating to Moab. It was a reckless move, however, at best. An ancient foe of Israel, Moabite, where did it come from? Moabite originated with Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. You read that in Genesis 19. That's the birthing. In fact, the word Moab kind of is a pun on who's your, who's your daddy. I mean, that's really the way we would say it, who's your daddy. Uh, and it, and, it, and it, was, it was a, a kind of a, derogative, a derogatory a fornication. Fornication it was Moab. Um, so, again, he was, Lot was leaving the land of blessing, uh, Elimelech was leaving the land of blessing to live among the pagans on the east side of the Dead Sea. He and his family, again, would, part of the reason is they would be exposed to the Moabite religion. Again, you can go back and read some of the history, part of the religion of the Moabites. They came in and, and they couldn't conquer Israel, so what did they do? They started intermarrying with the, with the Israelites. The Moabite women started marrying with the with the, 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 the Jewish men, and it perverted the line, and, and God got angry with that. He said, don't do that, okay? Um, there, it was degrading. Their worship was degrading. It was sexual. Uh, I think Elimelech understood the risk, but he considered, again, this is a temporary move for the sake of his family. See, I think a lot of people today even think like that. Well, I'll just do this for a little while. I'll just do this a little bit until I get where I need to be. But that's a dangerous thing. 
Because how many ever heard that sin will take you farther than you ever want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you are willing to pay. Elimelech's story tells us that. Jeff Thomas says this, The problem in Israel was not a lack of bread. The problem was a lack of obedience to Jehovah. This was not the first famine in the land flowing with milk and honey, and it would not be the last. In other words, there had been a cycle, so if they paid attention, they would have seen that if there was repentance, again, the chronicler said, if my people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves and pray and turn, repent, then. What do you say he would do? Hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and then do what? Heal their land. That was the cycle. But here's the thing. Good motives cannot cancel the impact of bad decisions. That's good. Good motives cannot cancel the impact of bad decisions. Again, the thing is, we may not obey the we we may not agree or like the rules, but we do have to obey. We do have to obey. What what matters is not whether we like the rules or agree with them. The only question is, am I going to obey them? Again, we're free to have our opinion as to whether they're right or wrong, but but we're not free to disobey without consequences. Motives matter. But in real life, obedience matters more. Matters more. See, we can run from our problems, but our problems will always follow us wherever we go. You know the term church hopper. That's one of the things you, you, you tell them. Hey, look, whatever your issue is, it'll follow you wherever you go. The best thing you can do is park yourself and work through that so you'll never have to deal with it again. So you never have to deal with it again. Just, just plant yourself, strong leg, like I said Sunday morning, strong leg, and just grow through it. A change of scenery doesn't produce a change of heart. Whatever we were before is what we will be wherever we go. We may dream of moving to a new house, a new neighborhood. If our church doesn't go the way we like, we'll go to find a new pastor or whatever. Whatever. Listen, if there's not a change in here, nothing really is going to change. Elimelech thought that he would go to Moab, he would stay until the famine passed, and then he would come back home. But you know what? Check out the three graves in Moab because it never happened. He violated the command of the Lord. He went to a place he wasn't supposed to be, and he was buried in a land not his home. He's buried there with his two sons. His wrong decision meant that he could never make it back. Samuel Cox said it this way, Elimelech lost his life while seeking, while seeking a livelihood and found a grave where he had sought a home. Here's the third lesson. I've got to hurry. Hard times prepare us for a great work of grace. Hard times prepare us for a great work of grace. You know, I preached years ago, and maybe one day I'll bring that back. There are desert detours. When God led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, the Bible said he led them the long way around. Many reasons for that, but one, main, one of the primary reasons is that there are things that we learn in the wilderness we can't learn anywhere else. See, in Egypt, they didn't have to worry about anything because even their taskmasters, they provided them with leeks and melons and onions and food, all the things they needed, but they were just servants. They were slaves. You see them out in the wilderness, what did they fuss about? Well, at least back there we had food. Never mind they were slaves. They had food, okay? So God had to, so they relied on Egypt. Even though they were in, in unfavorable circumstances, they relied on Egypt to provide them the sustenance that they needed to live. So they had, God had to get them out into the wilderness so that they had no Egypt to rely on. They just had to rely on him. There were things they had to learn before they could get into the promised land. Just like us, there are times that God leads us into the wilderness in our spiritual journey Sometimes we want to abandon the faith. Sometimes we want to throw our hands up and like, what in the world's going on here? But I promise you, if you'll just say, God, I don't like it. I don't enjoy this. I know I'm here on purpose, so teach me so I can get out of here. Because <laughs> there, there, there are things you're going to learn that you won't learn anywhere else. Oswald Chambers wrote about what he called the dance of circumstance. The dance of circumstance, which basically means that God, the hand of God working through random events I mean, think about this. Who raised up the judges? God did. Who sent the famine? God did. Who gave safe passage to Moab? God did. Who decreed the three men of the family should die there? God did. 
Now, here's the thing. As far as we know, reading this story, God never directly speaks to Elimelech. But the uns- we see the un- unseen hand of God in all of these events. See, when you walk in faith and when you walk in that covenant relationship, there's nothing happenstance about life. There's nothing happenstance about it. I love Tony Evans, the way he says it. God either allows it or permits it. God either allows it or causes God either causes it or allows it. In other words, it can't get to me if it hasn't gone through God first. Now, I know sometimes it's very frustrating because you think, God, I'm hurting. Why in the world am I having to endure this? Honestly, I, I don't have answers for that. But here's the thing. I, I found him to be trustworthy, and I trust him enough that I'll, I'll endure until I get to the other side, and then we can talk about it. Right? Again, whatever else you may say about your, your life, don't forget, don't forget that God oversees the tiniest of details. If he has the hair on our heads numbered, I promise you, he sees what we might even think insignificant. Nothing escapes his notice. Even the most unlikely events are part of his master plan for us. Job didn't understand that until 38 chapters in, into the book uh, that he started understanding. When the family left Bethlehem, there were four of them, three men, one woman, Okay. But now Naomi has buried the three men in the mountains of Moab. When she discusses her situation, here's what, you know, again, we'll get into this next week. She sits down, when she discusses this with or- Orpah and Ruth, Naomi declares that God has turned his hand against her, verse 13. That's, that's her assessment of what's going on. She's lost her husband, her, three, her two sons, and uh, she said, God's turned his hand against me. So as our text ends, as I bring this home tonight, as our text ends, Naomi, where is she? She's still in Moab, okay? Far from home, and that is figuratively and spiritually. She left the house of bread, Bethlehem. She went to a place of fornication or, you know, perversion. She's in Moab, away from home, away from God, figuratively and spiritually. She's coping now with the loss of, of her husband and her sons. And, and I promise you, grief is grief. I, I don't think the human nature has changed. Uh, I, I believe that people have grieved the loss of a loved one since uh, the family buried Abel. I may be wrong, but I feel like since Adam and Eve and uh, they, they lost their son, I think the human, mankind has grieved the loss. That's why we do hugs. That's why hugs is such a vital ministry for those grieving because grief is an, an emotion that most people suppress and and particularly when you start dealing with children children suppress that and then later on because they don't know how to deal with it they act out and we looked at their acting out as part of being unruly or undisciplined it's not that at all they don't know how to handle that pent up emotions of the loss and that's really where hugs was birthed was to be able to help them to process those emotions that run amok with dealing with things they can't understand. So you know, again, here she is by herself. She's away from her home, figuratively, spiritually. She's coping with the loss of her husband and her sons. She is where she shouldn't be in a pagan land, separated from God's people, facing the consequences of her husband's unwise decision. Again, that's why it's so important. Bathe decisions in prayer. Well, Pastor, how do I know which way to go? You know what? The Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart and your mind. I truly believe that God wants to weigh in. I think through the Holy Spirit, he'll lead us, that's what he said, into the path of truth. So, you know what? If I'm going to make a, a decision, I want to pray about it. I want, to have de- I want to have peace. If I don't have peace, I don't want to move because that's a disruptor. And if I don't have peace about it, then, then it raises a red flag that, hey, maybe I need to hang on a minute. Maybe I need to wait. Maybe I need to be cautious until I feel the peace of God. I, I, I trust that. You know, so she's in a pagan land, separated from God's people, facing the consequences of a decision she had no part in. That's where she is. She's an older widow. Now, again, think about all the complications. She's an older widow in the company of two younger widows, It's not an ideal place to be. She's in a foreign land with foreign women in a place God told her not to go. 
So what we could do is we, we could write over her story right here, hopeless. Hopeless. You ever been there? It's a place a lot of people go, a place that a lot of people uh, dwell right now. It's a place hopeless. Naomi is stuck in Moab, a widow with no hope of ever having uh, another child with the, with the two younger widows by her side. Again, those younger women are Moabites. They're not Jewish. As far as Naomi is concerned, not only does she not have a future, they don't either if they stay with her. That's where she is. Now, now as I close, as I bring this in, part of the challenge of reading this book, we know the end, <laughs> right? We, we know how the story ends. I mean, you know, we, and, and again, we face the same thing when we read stories like uh, in Genesis, like the book of like Joseph, for instance. You know, we know the end of the story. I mean, how much did Joseph know about his life when he went out to see his brothers that day, on that fateful day? Did he know ahead of time that they were going to put him in a pit? Did they know that he was going to be sold? Did, he, did they know about uh, Potiphar's wife? Did they know about the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker? Well, there wasn't a candlestick maker in there. But, uh, I mean, did they know about that? Did he know about the Midianites that would come by at just the right time? Had to leave their home from like three or four days earlier just to be there at that moment to cross paths. Did he know all of that? How much did he know? How much? Well, you know, again, I think the answer is the same. He didn't know anything. You know, we like to repeat what he said in Genesis 50. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Again, it kind of explains his enduring strength, but Joseph had no advanced knowledge that he as a Hebrew slave would eventually become the second in command. He had no idea. He just simply lived every day as it came with confidence in God. I'm telling you that because this. You know, sometimes people say, Pastor, does God have a blueprint of my life? Well, the answer is kind of a maybe two. Yes, he does. But there's only one copy, and you can't reach it. <laughs> that, that's it. I mean, does God have Yes, he knows the beginning from the end. He does. But he has the copy, so he knows what's going to happen, and I can't, I can't get to it. Uh, in other words, we're not going to have an advance notice of what's going to happen tomorrow. We, we know, have no idea what tomorrow brings, right? That's true for every one of us. It doesn't matter what our status is in society. Rich, poor, young, old, new Christian, mature believer, doesn't matter. We all have to take life as it comes, one day at a time. Here's the thing we know. As I, as I, again, I said close. I'm, I, that's, I'm working on it. Naomi, here's as we close. Here's, what, name it, here's the thing we know. Naomi still believes in God. Okay, There's no indication that she's turned her back on God, even though she's away from him. She still believes in God, even in a foreign land, cut off from her people. If she's bitter at the Lord, at least it, it's not turned her from him. She's a bruised believer, brokenhearted at what she has lost. I know sometimes people say things callously like, well, you know what? They just got what was coming to them. That's just wrong. <laughs> she just got what was coming to her. You know what? That just reveals how little we understand about God's huge heart. He's rich in grace. And I love one writer said, his pockets are deep and full of mercy. <laughs> God has not given up on Naomi. Even though she's sitting there in a foreign land away from all these people, her home, her family, God's not giving up on her. No matter, how, no matter what she thinks about him at this moment, he has big plans. And those plans are about to unfold. She has no idea what a great big God is about to do in her life. Little does she know that one day, think about this, one day she will hold a baby in her lap who will be the grandfather of King David. At this moment, chapter 1, she has no clue. She's mourning and grieving the loss of her husband and her two sons in a land that she was not supposed to be in, and yet God was working behind the scenes because that lady one day would hold in her lap the grandson, or excuse me, the grandfather of King David. Furthermore, she could have no idea that, and probably was not even a remote thought in her mind, that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite woman, will end up one day in the lineage of Christ. No idea. See, that's why I say her story begins with misery, but it ends with joy. Her sadness will be turned to joy, and she will discover that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But that's all in the future lessons that we go through. So as we leave this story tonight, 
just let's be content to know that, um, that we serve a God who can take the worst of the worst circumstance and he can turn it into the best of circumstances because that's the kind of God that we serve. And if I didn't believe that, I would close my Bible and I would walk out the door and not return if I did not believe that. We serve a God who can take the worst of the worst and make the best of it. Here's the thing as I close with this. I want you to stand. That way you know I'm serious. (laughs) As, As I close, give God time to work. Give God time to work. He knows what he's doing even when you and I have no clue. Again, Naomi is trapped in a place she doesn't want to be. She's lost everything that was familiar to her, buried her loved ones in a desert grave, lamenting the fact that they made the worst decision of their lives. But little does she know that behind the scenes, God is working events that would bring about the great King David and following his lineage, the Son of God, the Messiah himself. God redeems. That's the redeeming love. He, got, he takes the good, the bad, the ugly, all that we are. And if we give God time to work, he takes that tapestry. And I've, you, I've said this before. He takes a ta- If you look at a, a, a tapestry that people, if you flip it on the backside, it's just a bunch of jumbled up thread. No rhyme or reason to which way they run and why they run that away. Why is the yellow and the orange and the purple and the blue right here? But when you turn it around, it shows a beautiful picture. See, sometimes all we see is the strings of our shattered and torn lives. But God sees the masterpiece becoming. And if we give him time to work, if we give him time to work, he'll do something beautiful in our broken lives. I want you to bow with me as we close in prayer tonight. If you're online tonight, if you'll, if you'll just comment, we want to pray with you as well. And I just, I'm just going to ask this question. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you feel broken. Maybe you feel like you're in Moab, spiritually. You know, maybe there were circumstances that called you away and you, 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 you took a detour for a period of time and maybe you find yourself and you wonder, how did I get so far away? Maybe you remember the time when you felt the presence of the Lord in your life and you know, felt the freshness and the closeness of God and you just don't... You just don't feel that anymore. You think, God, have you abandoned me? Have you left me? Well, the story tonight reminds us, no, not, not he hasn't. He's behind the scenes. And if you'll give him time to work, if you'll, if you'll not turn, out, turn, turn your back on him, give him time to work. He'll make something beautiful out of your life. Anybody here tonight say, Pastor, pray for me. I feel sometimes like I'm in Moab. I'm struggling, and I just need God to do something for me. Just slip in right, right back down. Amen, amen. Amen. Online, if you'll you'll comment too, we want to pray with you tonight as well. One last thing, I just, sometimes we feel like our past disqualifies us from what God wants us to do in the future. The enemy plays that really, really, really well. And I I just want to tell you tonight, the past he remembers no more. When you commit that to him, but I, I, I just said that because I feel like there's somebody struggling. And, and, again, if that's you tonight, nobody looking around, if you're online, if you'll comment, just, just acknowledge. Just nod your head, raise your hand. Say, Pastor, that's me. I'm struggling with some things in my past, and I feel sometimes so unqualified. Amen. Thank you. Father, tonight I love you, and I thank you. What a beautiful story. Lord, I pray that tonight would just be one of those nights that just kind of whet our appetites and maybe gives us a little more insight into the who you really are. I mean, who would have ever written a story that starts out with such heartache and misery and disappointment only to end in a few weeks as we study in tremendous triumph. Lord, I pray that that would be indicative of where we are, that we would have faith that you take us as we are, where we are, and you begin to work behind the scenes. And maybe we can't see what you're doing or what you're up to, and we may not be able to perceive it at this moment, but if we'll stay committed and not turn our backs on you, Lord, you'll paint a, you'll, you'll weave a beautiful tapestry of our lives together. Father, I pray that we walk out of here. I pray especially for those that raise their hand and those online tonight. Lord, maybe there's some things in the past that, uh, Lord, they've done, things they've said, experiences that they've had that, uh, Lord, that, that, that make them feel disqualified. 
Lord, I pray that today they recognize that once we plead the blood, once we surrender that, repent if it's sinful of those things, Lord, it never is remembered again. Lord, and the enemy's the only one who reminds us. So, Lord, may we resist that. And, Lord, may we walk in your grace and in your mercy and receive that tonight. And I pray, Father, that you would help us say, just because you say we can, we can. And, Lord, that we put the enemy in his place. Now, Father, I ask you to go with us. Give us a wonderful, restful night, I pray. And wake us up in the morning with a spring in our step and a song in our heart. Bring us on Sunday ready once again to worship and to uh, receive your word. Uh, give us a great opportunity this rest of this week to invite someone to be with us and to share our faith with them. Lord, I love and bless each one now in the mighty name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us online. I look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you, and I love you very much. It's who you are. It's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am And I've seen many searching for It's who you are. It's who you are.